The Where Our Minds Wander podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander. Where strange lights speed beyond reason across a clear night sky. The house at the end of the road where disembodied voices whisper and strange noises make the living shiver. Lurking shadows hiding on the edge of the woods just outside your back door. Odd true events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is where our minds wander. Hello and welcome to Where Our Minds Wander, all you fellow wanderers. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And each week we delve into stories that piqued our curiosity. So sit back, get comfy, and let us take you on a journey to where our minds wandered this week. We hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving last week. Yeah, we had a pretty good Thanksgiving and Christmas is just around the corner. So, we, you know, we put up our Christmas decorations in our tree and the house is feeling quite festive. Yes, it is. And it feels pretty cozy and comfy at night with all the Christmas lights on. That it does, and especially with all the fragrant candles that are burning in the house. Yes, as they all duke it out with their various fragrances. (laughs) I kind of like it. (laughs) It does make an interesting overall scent. (laughs) (laughs) That it does. So where did your mind wander this week? Well, I'm going to tell you about a peculiar mystery that's still unsolved to this day. Uh Aha. Ellie, known affectionately as Love8, was a good blimp. Manufactured by Goodyear as an advertising blimp, it was purchased by the U.S. Navy and assembled in March of 1942. The 150-foot-long, 45-foot-wide blimp had successfully flown 1,092 times. But on August 16, 1942, Love 8 inexplicably crashed, landed in the middle of a suburban San Francisco street, taking out utility poles and deflating completely on top of a newly polished car. Oh, no. Tensions were high as rescuers rushed to check on the crewmen. The many explosives on board could ignite at any second. But they surged forward, peering into the gondola, which was completely empty. Helium rushed into the air. Fearing that the two-man crew were somehow inside the deflated envelope of the blimp, the firemen began slashing its sides to gain access. They found nothing. Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams were missing. How does a Navy blimp fly for almost five hours when witnesses claim to have seen two figures in the gondola and then crash off course completely unmanned? The answer to this day is still a complete mystery. Charles Ellis Adams had 2,281 hours of LTA, or lighter-than-air flight time, over his 20 years' experience. He was highly regarded as an exemplary officer, even receiving recognition from the German government for rescuing passengers during the Hindenburg disaster. Oh, wow. Ernest DeWitt Cody was both younger and less experienced than Adams, But this was his second trip on Love 8. The first time in April of 1942, 
he had flown Lovate loaded with cargo over the USS Hornet and was able to successfully hover over the carrier's deck as 300 pounds of spare parts were lowered down. He was highly regarded as a pilot after that. Plus, he had survived the USS Macon airship disaster. The USS Macon was a flying aircraft carrier, and when it crashed, the Navy put an end to LTA-rigid airships. So, the partnering up of the two men and setting them off on this routine mission was completely understandable. Their mission was to patrol the waters off San Francisco in search of Japanese submarines. If they spotted any, they were supposed to sink them, which is why Love 8 was outfitted with two 325-pound Mark 17 depth bombs mounted on an external rack, a 30 caliber machine gun, and 300 rounds of ammunition. Love 8 took off from Treasure Island at 6.03 a.m. en route to a 50-mile radius patrol of San Francisco. Once Cody passed over the Golden Gate Bridge, he headed southwest toward the Farallon Islands. At 7.38, Cody radioed Love 8's position as four miles east off the Farallons. Four minutes later, he sent a second message. Am investigating suspicious oil slick. Stand by. Since an oil slick could indicate that an enemy sub was in the area, the two men dropped two Mark IV float lights, which were a type of smoke-producing flare. The ship circled the area for over an hour. Nearby, cargo ship Gallatin sounded the alarm and manned their guns as soon as they saw the flares. Fishing ships, like the Daisy Gray, pulled up their nets. The captain of the Daisy Gray watched through binoculars as Love 8 continued to circle, sometimes as low as 30 feet. He clearly saw two crewmen aboard in the gondola, but since nothing else happened, everyone remained calm. Around 9 a.m., Love 8 sailed off and everyone went back to normal business. But strangely, Cody's last radio transmission at 7.38 was the last time anyone had radio contact with the Love 8. They had plenty of fuel to return to base, but such prolonged radio silence was a bit strange. Concerned, the Navy sent out two float planes to try and locate the craft. At 10.49, a Pan-American clipper reported seeing the blimp passing over the Golden Gate Bridge. The blimp still appeared to be heading back towards base. But at 11 a.m., one of the float planes said that they had spotted the Love 8 as well, flying precariously low. Next to sight the L-8 was an Army P-38 pilot who spotted the blimp near Mile Rock, six miles from the Golden Gate. He didn't see anything strange about the ship and assumed it was heading the 12 miles to Treasure Island. But a few minutes later, another sailor who just happened to be driving along the highway between San Mateo and San Francisco spotted the blimp, and it was bent in the middle. Oh, that's not good. He had the presence of mind to stop and take a picture, which was later taken by authorities as evidence. At 11.15 a.m., a beachgoer at Ocean Beach noticed an unnerving sight. A silent blimp came into view, just 50 feet away. It sagged listlessly as it flew along with the wind current, barely 50 feet off the ground. It was so low that it actually skimmed the sand before smacking the side of the gondola into the hill, bending its propellers. Hmm. Alarmingly, the collision also knocked one of the bombs loose. Oh, no. 
Yup. <laughs> Luckily, it was designed to detonate underwater, so it simply rolled down the hill and came to a stop on the sand. Oh my gosh! Can you imagine being the people that were on the beach as this bomb comes <laughs> rolling towards them? Yeah, I bet they ran in the water. <laughs> they ran anywhere they could. Love Eight rose into the air again and disappeared. At this point, hundreds of people were watching the sagging blimp as it doggedly flew across the sky. Those with binoculars claimed they could see the two crewmen still inside the gondola. But finally, Love 8 made its landing, although it wasn't a soft one. It apparently scraped across several rooftops before it hit an electrical pole, shooting off sparks. Luckily, that was the only fire. It somewhat ungracefully flopped over a newly washed and polished car parked on the street. Aw, man, I just washed that. It was 11.30 a.m. Firemen arrived. Rescuers arrived. Curious bystanders arrived. The gondola door was open, but Cody and Adams weren't in there. Fearing that they had somehow gotten trapped inside the folds of the blimp, rescuers shredded it, and no one was found. Strangely, all three parachutes were accounted for, and the life raft was still on board. A briefcase containing classified material was found behind the pilot's seat. In fact, the gondola itself was in pristine order. Everything exactly in the right place, except for the radio headset, which was hanging outside the latch and open gondola door. There was no sign of any sort of malfunction like the Navy expected, and there was still plenty of fuel in the tanks. The flight controls were working perfectly, as were the engines. There was no reasonable explanation for why the blimp had failed or why the crew was just gone. But there was this. The investigation showed that the blimp's batteries were drained and part of its fuel supply had been dumped. By all witness accounts, there was no reason for Love 8 to have dumped fuel, which was only done when a blimp needed to rise very, very quickly. No one had witnessed anything during the flight that would cause the crew to do that. The Navy launched exhaustive searches, both in the water and along the coastline, but no evidence of Cody or Adams was ever recovered. That's weird. That it is. After being repaired, the L-8 returned to service with the Navy once again. After the war, Goodyear got her back and the Love 8 was repainted. She flew over major sporting events until 1982. Oh, wow. So I probably saw her, it. I don't know if you call airships her, but I probably saw it over sporting events when I was a kid. More than likely, yes. So there were never any theories about what happened? Oh, there were theories. Anything from being taken prisoner by the Japanese to a love spat over a woman that ended in murder to alien abduction. <laughs> <laughs> but nothing that seemed plausible? Well, the Navy's unofficial official line was that one of the men must have slipped somehow, and both men fell out of the ship when one was trying to haul the other one back inside. But when would that have happened if witnesses all along said they could see the two men inside it? Well, I really have no clue. Although... There was one report where witness said she saw three men in the gondola, which is funny since originally there were supposed to be three crewmen, but either Cody or Adams told the third guy to get off the blimp before they even launched. 
That's weird. The whole thing is weird. Hey, did you know? In 1535, Catholic Church leaders became so concerned with the evil deeds that were likely going on late at night that the Church allegedly instated a sort of curfew between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m. This was done to halt the efforts of the devil and the practice of witchcraft, which had increasingly become a concern for the Church. This declaration by the Church may have helped to cement the association between witchcraft, evil spirits, and the 3 a.m. hour. However, recent studies show that our waking up suddenly, alert and anxious at 3 a.m. during the witching hour, could be no more than our natural sleep pulling us in and out of REM sleep at slightly off cycles. Who'd have thunk it? So, Beth, where did your mind wander this week? Well, we haven't talked about a haunting in a while, so I thought I'd talk about one. Well, I'm always up for a good haunting. Imagine living in a 400-year-old home that actually was built over 5,000-year-old graves and being able to see possibly the most well-preserved Neolithic village in all of Scotland, Scarabray, from your windows. You know, I'm finding it funny that since we've been doing this, we find a lot of places that are built over graveyards. We do. There's a definite connection. And you talked about the Scarabray mystery balls a few episodes ago. That I did. Well, if you lived at Scale House on the Scottish island of Orkney, you most certainly would be living in such a place. And you might share your home with some ghosts. I mean, why wouldn't you? Scale House was originally nothing more than a simple manor house, replacing a Viking-era homestead in the 1620s. It was built by Bishop George Graham, father to nine children and husband to Admiral Crichton's niece. Bishop Graham was regarded as being quite generous to the poor, but too lenient when it came to adultery, incest, and witches. So he was forced to resign in 1638, but he was allowed to keep his properties, of which he had several. He passed away at age 78 in 1643, leaving Scale House to his youngest son, John. John was named the first laird, and over the next 400 years, the property stayed in the same family for 12 generations. I love the architecture of the scale house. It looks like a cross between a medieval castle and a church. It does. It's really cool looking. As each generation lived at scale house, they made extensive additions to the house adding two freestanding wings to the central courtyard in 1770. I love that we're talking about the 1600s and the 1700s because the family lived there forever. A chapel, walled garden, and dovecote were added as well. So I had to look it up. A dovecote is a separate structure used to house doves. <laughs> it's a sprawling estate, reminiscent of a castle, like you said, and although I couldn't find square footage or the exact number of rooms, I did find out that the library has at least one hidden bookcase, which is pretty cool. Oh, that would be awesome. Very cool. And there are other hidden things in and under 
scale house. Of course there is. The seventh Laird, William Graham Watt, just happened to discover something remarkable after a severe storm battered the coast of Orkney Island in 1850. Not 300 meters from Scale House, strange dwellings came into view. Watt decided to excavate and unearthed four Neolithic homes that are older than the Egyptian pyramids. He gathered quite a few artifacts and brought them into Scale House to display for the guests that visited him there. In the years after, each laird added to the collection. The ninth laird even turned their grand dining room into a mini-museum for the stuff he brought in, so guests could admire them. Scarabray is where some of the mysterious carved stone balls have been found, and I won't go into them too much because we already covered them. But the Neolithic carved stone balls of Scotland are a huge mystery. Historians still can't figure out how they were carved or why. Each one is roughly the size of a baseball, and historians and archaeologists can't come to a consensus on what they were used for. But the Scarabray artifacts weren't the only cool things guests could see if they visited the Seventh Laird. They could even sleep in Bishop Graham's bed, which still sits in a bedroom of the house to this day. His real bed? His actual bed from, like, the 1600s. Wow. A few of the house guests during Laird Number no. 7's tenure were quite notable. For example, the wife of explorer Sir John Franklin came to call. Franklin had lost his life during a voyage to discover the Northwest Passage. And the family had acquired Captain Cook's entire dinner service set from Cook himself prior to 1779. The plates are white with giant pink flowers all over them, which I think is it's kind of funny. <laughs> so they're eating off Captain Cook's dinnerware. They probably did. I mean, they're on display now, but they certainly could. How awesome is that? <laughs> I know. With their flowers all over them. I don't know why. I expect them to have, like, skull and crossbones on them or something. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe his wife picked them out. In 1991, the 12th Laird followed suit and began his own renovations, painstakingly trying to convert as much of the interior back to its original glory. When he pulled up floorboards in the south wing of the house, he found something no one really wants to find. A skeleton. But not just one. Fifteen of them. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> but there were more under the flagstones at the front of the house. Thinking they were Viking, left over from the original homestead, the Laird had them carbon dated, and he was told that they were not, that they were actually pre-Viking and most likely Pictish. Pict is Latin for painted, and the Pictish people tattooed themselves heavily. Originally, the Romans, who named the Pict people Pictish, may have done so in an attempt to insult them, but the name stuck. They were Celtic-speaking people who lived in the area from about 300 to 900 B.C. So, his house had been built on a pre-Viking burial ground. And it was still about a thousand feet from this massive Neolithic village from 5,000 years ago, where about 50 people lived for 300 years. Oh, it so makes me want to move to Scotland and live there. Yes. <laughs> 
1997, Scale House was open to the public, and as the public arrived, so did the inevitable ghost encounters. You'd think Bishop Graham, right? Or maybe some Neolithic people? Nope. The ghosts at Scale House are believed to be much more contemporary. Legend has it that a man who everyone called Ubby began as a young man to carry large stones in his boat from Scale House out into Scale Lock. He traveled back and forth, day after day, transporting rock out into the lock, dumping them each time in the same spot, until eventually he'd built a small island for himself. This took years, and by the time he had finished, Ubby was a much older man. He died on his island out in the lock, but visitors and the present laird of Scale House believe Ubby has returned to the house and has made his presence known on more than one occasion. Around 10.30 one evening, the laird was working on renovations with just his dog for company. Suddenly, the dog's hackles raised and it began to growl as distinct heavy footsteps walked towards them. The laird immediately thought an intruder had broken into the house, and the dog, apparently in guard mode, ran towards the sound. The laird looked everywhere and found no one. The laird's dog was not the only one to encounter Ubby. Apparently other dogs that visit the property have been known to growl and bark at something completely unseen. Doors often open and close by something unseen as well. There was another instance when the laird and an employee smelled cigarette smoke, but not a lingering it's-in-the-walls scent. This was a full-blown, someone-is-smoking-right-now strength. Although they knew they were the only ones on site, they still searched all the rooms, and of course, they found no one, inside or out. Interesting. Not all of the encounters are just sounds and smells. Some are even full-bodied apparitions. One employee claimed that while she was in the on-site gift shop, she saw a reflection of a man in the shop out of the corner of her eye. He was tall and had long black hair with it thinning on top. When she moved to approach him, he suddenly wasn't there at all. In fact, there were no visitors in any part of the house. She's not the only employee with eerie tales to tell. One summer morning, several cleaners were in the courtyard near the two rental apartments. They noticed a woman with a shawl over her head standing inside one of them. Thinking they were disturbing a late-rising guest, they didn't enter the apartment to clean it until much later. And that's when they found out that all of the guests had already checked out earlier that morning way earlier than they had seen the shawl-wearing lady. As recently as 2018, a guest took a photograph of the front exterior of Scale House and caught what looks like a figure standing in the central upstairs window. At first, when I looked at it online, it seemed like pareidolia, you know, when we, we see faces in inanimate objects. Yes, Because I thought the ghost was just the negative space between two pulled-back curtains. But comparison photos taken soon after show very clearly that there aren't any curtains in that particular window. 
it's an interesting picture. If you go to visit Scale House today, you'll find that the interior of the house is preserved to look like it did in the 1950s, and that it seems very much like a family home. So I'm not sure if anyone does have any ideas about who might be haunting Scale House other than Ubby, who, to be fair, might just be a legend since I couldn't find any substantial evidence of his existence. But there's certainly something, or some things, haunting this incredible historic landmark. Well, there's certainly something to it. There usually is, right? I mean, I don't think they would have any reason to make any of this stuff up. No. And it can't all be their imagination. But it's funny that it's not someone from the distant past. And that, to me, makes it more believable. You know, like, I always look for the rational explanation. Right. You know, I'm not a super skeptic, but I'm not one of those people that believes everything. Right. And the fact that these hauntings seem to be more contemporary and not further back in the history of the house, to me, does make it more believable. That it does. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for this episode, Beth. Yep, we'll see you all soon. Yeah, see you all next week for an all-new episode of Where Our Minds Wander. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to traveling with you again to the places where our minds wander. If you like what you heard, please take a moment and provide us with a five-star rating and a comment. It really helps us move up the list so people can find us. See you next week for an all-new episode of Where Our Minds Wander.